1: And welcome to the Property Voice podcast with me, your host. Yeah, you might have realized it's not Richard Brown today, it's Helen Pollock, the content doc. And there's a very good reason why Richard isn't interviewing today. That's because he's our guest. There's nobody better to talk about working full time in property than Richard. So, Some of you may know um, a bit about Richard's background and how he came to be working in property full time. Some of you may not, but I know that Richard's got so many valuable experiences to share. So, without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Richard Brown, the property voice. Hello, Richard. Hi,
0: Helen. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, thanks. How does it feel to be on the other side today?
0: Weird. (laughs) <laughs> it, feels, it feels weird but it's great that you're doing it so I feel a lot more comfortable thank you so much for agreeing to quiz me on my own show but anyway it's great thank you
1: <laughs> my pleasure and uh, as I said I know that you've got so much to share that listeners will find really valuable so let's uh let's crack on and I'll, I'll start quizzing you so first of all some of your listeners might not know what your background is. So before you started uh, going into property, what were you doing?
0: What was I doing? Yeah, it's always, do you know what? Every time I ask a guest that question, they like, what, do you want to tell, should I say when I was born and where and, you know, all that stuff? And I was like, yeah, I guess it, you know, I want to be a bit more specific. But some of it can be quite relevant. Um, so I did come from, I, I like to say I came from a working class family. Um, I think my dad would say he's aspiring middle class. Um, and you know so whilst you know ha- had a news agency, for example, and he ran an insurance uh, area book, and my my mom was uh, a legal secretary and, in, and then retired with a bit of RSI. So um, that was the sort of upbringing, if you like. And the relevance of that is that I guess I was taught hard work from a very early age because, for example, in the news agents, Being the eldest son, I basically, I had two paper rounds and sometimes three, obviously when somebody didn't show up. So um, I guess I had a bit of a work ethic from an early stage, which was, you know, a small business, you know, obviously a news agency, um, if you can call it that. And then, you know, the real, you know, grind of it, of of doing the newspaper rounds. So that was that. And that kind of, that theme carried on. So every time through school and college and university, you know, mainly college and university, I always had jobs, part time jobs, summer jobs, you know, Christmas jobs, jobs. And so, uh, you know, work ethic is very much drilled into me from from that stage. And money wasn't, you know, a, a, a wash, let's say, from from those years. And so, you know, that was another thing that you know, there was a bit of scarcity, I suppose, that, you know, that I learned. Needless to say, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to university and have you know, my education paid for by the government, which I was privileged, of course, to be in that, that place. Now, it's not quite the same these days, of course, um, by any means, is it? But um, okay. I had the opportunity of getting a, a decent education, uh, and I really took that. And um, I went into, I, I trained, started training in an accountancy after leaving university, so to be quite good at numbers that my best a level was accounting and i got an a in accounting but by the way i reckon um i should have taken accounting aardvarkism and something else beginning with a because <laughs> i also took economics but i got an e in economics in a level so uh, i don't know what happened there but um that just broke down to bad day but yeah i was always pretty interested in numbers and always pretty interested in people um, so the accountancy, if you like, uh, gave a, a good background in both, but um, probably more so the numbers and the people. <laughs> and so actually I made a switch over into leasing and asset finance, which is um, financial services. And I was working for um, a subsidiary of HSBC Bank, as is now, um, back then. And um, I think I found my environment, professionally speaking, at that point. Um, it was really good. There's a lot of numbers and a lot of people. So, you know, that, that kind of worked. Um, Made, made my way up, if you like. That was the first part of my career, financial services, really. And um, so the relevance of that, of course, is I had a decent financial you know, background. I could read a balance sheet. Uh, I, you know, I could talk about things like discounted cash flow and um, you know, all of that good stuff. In fact, I wrote white paper. That's a bit of a clue, actually, because writing um, was something I kind of wanted to do from an early age, but didn't really do anything about it for quite a long time. I hold that thought. So yeah, um, the asset finance, financial services. The irony is I was, I was in business to business financial s- services, as I mentioned. But my personal finances, I'll be very honest with you, were absolutely shocking. They were, they were I was not clever. Um, I, I kind of rolled the dice a bit, let's say that. Um, my pension wasn't in a great shape and I put it into the wrong place, wrong type of investment. Um, Despite having my um, tuition fees paid for at university, I left university with a lot of student debt uh, from living expenses, perhaps over living expenses. Um, so I carried a bit of debt from actually more than a decade um, from, from the student years. And you know, just a few things that probably didn't make the wisest decision. So I had this contrast in, in my professional career. I was, I kind of knew how it went, and I was giving advice almost, you know, how to. You know, work with numbers and money and stuff. But personally, I was a mess. Really, I didn't. And and I think I'm being very honest about it here because it's not the same today, uh, fortunately. And so I can I can shame myself, my former self, because I managed to sort that out. Uh, but back then, of course, being uh, in financial services, you couldn't you couldn't say I don't know anything about money. You had to pretend you did. And um, and I think you know maybe some people can resonate. But needless to say, um, just to kind of finish the pre-property bit, um, I kind of I went into um, I had a meandering path. I managed to step out of full-time employment once, um, and then went contracting. So I was a contractor for a while, and the intention was to start my own business. And I migrated to run a couple of companies. I did okay, so I had what I call it my real-life MBA by running a couple of businesses in industries I didn't really know that much about when I started. One was a call center, one was a technology business, then it was a security, uh, online security business or e-commerce business. So I kind of taught myself several industries from the inside and that was quite good as well because you learn about business you know, and obviously running a business, all the different disciplines. Sold those, didn't make a fortune, but did okay. Um, And then tried to be a consultant With mixed results, I think, in all honesty, I think I remember seeing, I was trying to advise small business owners at the time. And I remember seeing probably between 70 and 100 small business owners. And I would say this is the experience I had there, is that probably only one in 10 were really making it. I think um, a vast majority were just getting by and some were probably on the verge of collapse. So that was a bit of an eye opener to watch that. And I only just got by when I was a small business person myself. So um, having, you know, I I can resonate a lot with people who have that struggle. Needless to say, I probably, it was feast and famine, the whole project side of things of consulting, uh, feast and famine. And eventually I decided that it would probably be better to go back into full-time employment. And so a crazy man by the name of John Chitty um, at Oracle uh, took me back, you know, probably I was unemployable already by then, but, He took me back uh, into the leasing and asset finance industry, you know, financing software and things like that. And I did a couple of years with him. Um, I don't think he regretted the decision, but I didn't stay that long. I went to work for other companies like Microsoft and Siemens on the financial services side of things. Before, um, well, I had one bad experience, but I don't know if you want to talk about that, what led me into property. But that was the pre-property preamble, which is probably quite a long, uh, longer than you imagined story, actually.
1: No, that's great, um, and really interesting to hear about that disconnect between your business life, where you you know you're great with finance, and you know your personal life where the finances weren't quite so uh, looking so great, um, and also the um, the consultancy. That's so interesting that you estimate that around one in, only one in 10 of the small businesses where you carried out consultancy work were actually making it. Um, I think um, many of us think that uh, a job or um, a small business where we're the boss are going to be the answer financially. And I think, you know, what you've just demonstrated is that's not the case, actually. So that was...
0: No, I was just going to say. I mean, it certainly can be the case, but I think these statistics, you know, can be misleading. I'm mean, if you probably read uh, Millionaire Fastlane, for example, books of that ilk. You know, you talk, you know, about the only way to get rich really is for having your own company, having your own business. And I'd, I'd probably a large, I wouldn't largely agree with it, but there's certainly true. There's truth in that, but at the same time, that you know, there's survivor bias. So, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of businesses that don't make it. Uh, or if they do, they, they struggle along and bounce along the bottom. So that's the reality. So it's not, what was the quote I heard the other day? Some people will work 80 hours a week for themselves so they don't have to work 40 hours a
1: week for someone else. <laughs> so. I, I suspect many of our listeners can relate to that one. <laughs> so, um, moving on from that point that you've talked us through your um, your history, your education, and your early working life. How did you come to start investing in property?
0: Yeah, um so apart from I, I really I was an accidental landlord in the mid-90s and I didn't know what I was doing, Helen, in all honesty back then. Um, I, I got it got a job with a relocation. And so I was living in 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 Slough. Yeah living in Slough and I got a job in Manchester and so um, I went up to Manchester and I just thought well just rent the place out I don't know why I just thought rent the place out and um, I got an agent because I was in Manchester and got some tenants who said they want to stay there forever Um, more or less and within six months probably less than six months actually within the first few months there was a major sort of repair there was a a water tank which exploded somehow Um, quite a lot of damage and the you know so that that wipes out at least a year's worth of rental profit to fix that and the other thing and it was quite stressful because I was away and I didn't really know anything other, what I was doing and the other thing is the tenants who were going to stay forever decided to move on so foolishly actually in retrospect in hindsight I decided to sell that property so I made some money out of it from a capital gain point of view but you know what I you know I used to go and look at the value, but I stopped doing that a few years ago because yeah it would, uh, it would cause pain so that was a that was a regret if you like to sell that property but fast forward to the mid noughties so mm-hmm. this wasn't that long ago really so roughly fifteen years ago um I kind of i was <laughs> I was working probably with my friend John I just talked about maybe i'm not sure the exact timing but I went for a sneaky pint after work one summer's evening and I was in the beer garden uh, and I was just I was on my own <laughs> and I was doodling uh, on a napkin with a pen um, and you're going to think this is bizarre but I was doodling compound interest and, and portfolio growth uh, on this napkin uh, because I understood the concept in a business-to-business sense and I was kind of starting to think of it in a personal sense with property. And I, I call it my Eureka moment because um, it was. It's like, oh wow, uh, this is it! You know, whatever i been doing all my life, you know, I didn't understand this, and I was even working in a sector where you do, you know, work with those numbers. So, uh, and needless to say, I took a decision that I was going to get into property uh, from that experience. But it actually took another four years before I finally did get into property. And ironically, that four-year delay cost me probably about two million pounds in gross property value. Wow! Yeah, um, probably excluding capital growth. It may include some rent and profit, but around about two million pounds. a four-year delay cost me, and that was effectively the, 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 the what I did in the first year. You know, multiplied by the four years I'd missed out. That's what happened. And and here's the thing. I thought I needed a load of money to get going, and that's the main reason why I waited. I also wanted to get educated. Uh, it took a bit too long getting educated. And ironically, by the time I got educated, I realized I didn't need as much money as I thought I did. So I was like, "Ah, oh, gosh. So, But that was a catalyst, really, because that really um, started me wanting to share my knowledge in property as well, because... There was a mess around that time. I don't know if, if you were looking at property around about the mid-noughties, but it was like the Wild West. You know, It was like the Wild West in terms of values and people doing you know, same-day remortgaging and assignable off-plan deals and 125% loans and all of that stuff. And then loads of bad advice and actually downright illegal advice as well. So I kind of decided, uh, well, part of the reason it took me so long to learn is that I had to wade my way through all that stuff. Meanwhile, the the property crash arrived, didn't it? So my my first investment actually coincided with the property crash. Fortunately, I guess, I was on the right side of it rather than the wrong side of it. So I bought my first property proper, as I like to say, in about 2000, it was 2009. First few properties in 2009. And so they were effectively, um, I always tried to add value to property. That's something I recognized. So I always did something where I could either, either had value inherent, for example, with a discount, or I could add value in some way, for example, by refurbishment or changing the use, say, from single let to HMO or things like that. So that became my strategy. You know, BRR was my killer strategy, you know, when I got started. Doing refurbishments, doing small, you know, um, developments. I wouldn't call them large developments, very, very small stuff, and trying to add value and recycled money because I didn't have lots of it. When I first started, I had 10,000 pounds, which was um, from a bonus of work. That's the personal funding I had available when I got going. So there we go, that's how I got started. That's,
1: um, That's so interesting. So from that point, What strategies did you adapt as, and how did you scale up?
0: Yeah, good questions. I mean, quite a lot of different strategies in a way, to be honest with you, Helen. I don't necessarily advocate this for everyone else. Um, So if I tell you part of the reason why I pursued a number of different strategies, it was also to educate myself. Mm. So, So for example, I'll get into it in a second, but when I got into serviced accommodation, I did it because I wanted to educate myself about strategy uh, more than anything. So you guessed it, I did a bit of service accommodation, but before that I was doing mainly, I did a little bit of flips, which helped raise money for some of the BRR, buy, refurbish, refinance, where you you know, you know add some value, you put a tenant in, you refinance and you pull some money out. Now, the, you know a lot of the gurus or certain people in property would say you can fully recycle your money from a BRR strategy. I think it's it, it, it was possible, but I don't think it's as possible now. It, it possibly is under the right conditions, but I think largely you expect to leave some money in the deal, and so you have to top up that fund. And you, you, you know, the basic ways to top it up are you know through your own personal you know, fundraising, savings, bonuses, friends and family, or stuff like that. Or tentatively, if you flip along the way, you can you know hopefully generate a profit. And some or all of that profit can stay in your next deal. So did a bit of flipping, did a bit of uh, buy refurbish refinance, finance, um, did a bit of service accommodation, started to get a bit more adventurous. Did, it went up to HMOs, and, um, went for a bit of planning with HMOs to get the uh, sui generis um, status, if you like. Um, then I started to do a little bit of the same, but in different countries, just because. So I do actually have investment interest in four countries, including the UK. So UK, USA are the big two, and then also Portugal and Brazil. Uh, the latter two, because of the, particularly my wife is, is Brazilian, speaks Portuguese. So that, that's a big help. Um, probably wouldn't invest in those areas without, <laughs> without my wife, frankly. But the USA and the U- UK, well, apart from the USA, is like 50 countries. It's not actually one. It's crazy. But there we go. <laughs> So diversified across geographies, uh, tenant types, single let uh, mainly white you know working tenants, let's say, um, and then the service departments I think I'm getting most of them. It was only recently because you were saying about scaling.
1: It was only recently
0: in the last two two and a half years or so where I, I would say I really scaled up and um, in that time I've moved into conversions, you know commercial conversions in particular and some ground-up development as well. And um, the it's is interesting, you'll probably ask me what changed for me, I don't know, maybe you will, but um, so from a strategies point of view, I kind of got to conversions and developments, and I've, I've currently got something like uh, seven uh, projects on the go right now um, that I'm working through different stages of development.
1: Well, you were right, I was gonna ask you that. <laughs> thanks for stealing my thunder <laughs> so um how and how's that gone? How's the scaling up gone um I guess what you know what are the what are the different things that you now need to consider
0: yeah well thank um there's a lot of different things, and how it's gone is mixed frankly um so I scaled very fast um there's a lot of the the two there's three big things you need. I think. I think the first one is, is, is your own belief and your own mindset. And, you know, sometimes there was a bit of a glass ceiling. Um, in fact, that occurred more than once in my career or my, you know, my business, business life. You hit this glass ceiling. You just put a limit on your capabilities. Um, and so one, one lesson I perhaps would suggest to people there is, you know, I used to say things like, I can't do that. I can't do that. And more, you know, recently I've been saying, how can I do that? Instead of, you know, so just reframe the same. I don't know how to do it, but rather than say I can't do it because I don't know, I say, how can I do it? And then something magical happens when you reframe a negative I can't do, a limiting belief, into more of a, you know, what would be the opposite of a limiting belief? Unlimited.
1: Limitless Limitless belief.
0: Limitless belief. Thank you. So if you reframe it as a limitless belief, two things happen. One is your own subconscious starts working on the problem, because you posed it as a problem. And then the second thing is, and this is getting woo-woo, and I know sometimes we talk about woo-woo, but the universe it knows about it as well. And then suddenly things start to happen, which you think, how could that be? People start coming into your world that could answer that problem. So one is the mindset and the belief and this breaking through the glass ceiling. But fundamentally, once you've got the belief, that's not it. You don't just stand there and wait for the universe to give you, you know, these great opportunities. So the next things are, um, you need you need the opportunities, and then you need the funds to, you know, undertake the opportunities. They're, you can't do anything without those two things. And then after that, you need the team, and you need the skill set, and you need all of the good things, the professionals, if you like, to make it happen. And, and so when I said mixed. The I got pretty much so I broke through the glass ceiling. I was getting up, then I was getting opportunities. Then I was getting the funds to you know be able to take advantage of the opportunities, um, manifesting whatever you want to say, but you know that was happening. And of course, what I knew at the levels I was working at was a certain level, And what I needed to know as I moved up in scale was, was different. And um, so, stepping out. I stepped out, you know, quite big time. And we, Damien, who I was working with a while ago, as you know, Damien, we had a phrase which was "go big or go home." Yes, I remember. So we went big, and then we went home. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, so pushing out too too far too soon, you know, I think they call it overtrading. You know, can have a detrimental effect. So. Just be careful about that. So I think today, you know, now I've got like more professional team around me. I understand things a lot better. And you know things that are going to, you know, take longer, they're more complicated. And dealing with planning and things like that is much more complex. Um, having, you know, the, the principles of project management are the same. And yet the, the level of detail is, is that much different. So there's lots of different elements to larger projects, but you grow into it. I just wish I'd have grown into it a little bit more leisurely than I did. So I've got my stripes, you know, from and my my battle scars from over the last few years through that growth. But actually, it's now put me in a really great place um, to to keep going. And the just just I think it's important at this stage to say that growth is not for everyone, Um, and you know, accelerated growth is not for everyone. I think um, I'm on a bit of a mission because I've now got a goal to develop a legacy and the legacy is not for me or even my family. Although don't get me wrong, my family are very important to me and they will be well looked after. It's actually beyond me and my family now. So I'm on this mission. And so that's part of the reason why I'm scaling and continuing to scale and push myself and push limits and boundaries. So um, yeah, so that, like I said, it's not for everyone. Uh, because it depends what your personal goals are and what you're trying to achieve. And it also depends on your resources and your risk profile, lots of other factors too. But, you know, I think I've given you a bit of a clue about my risk profile from some earlier experiences. So it suits me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So um, I guess it's probably a good point to move on to what your biggest mistakes have been i know you're you're a very honest person and you will not hold back what were those you know crazy aha moments along the way um that you could share with uh, with your listeners yeah thanks helen for that
0: yeah this is the it a bit isn't it um so i mean i think not having the personal financial financial education from an earlier stage would be the first one because I was ignorant to that to a large extent. I shouldn't have been, but I was. So I I think getting educated, you know, with personal finance at an early stage is very, very important. And, you know, I'm 50 odd, I'm mid-50s now. So, you know, I've been full-time, well, I've been working in property for the last 10 years, 11 years. And, you know, imagine if I'd have started when I was 21 or something, you know, it would have been a lot different. So that's the first thing that was, I could have been better equipped the second thing probably is, you know, selling that property that I told you about when I started as an accidental landlord, that was in the mid-90s. So over 20 years ago. And you know, and if I'd have held on to it for a bit longer, I probably would have started sooner as well. And, and that would have, you know, created a snowball effect at an earlier point in life. Um, I think getting the education, um, I got the education. The, financial education and in property education as well but it took a long time so I think that four-year hiatus you know between my what I call my Eureka moment and actually investing needn't have been four years. Now I'm not saying people should just leap and just you know, you know just jump into the first thing they see, uh, sink or swim or try you know crash courses and pay too much for education. I think uh, I have a strong view on that as well. You know, you you know, invest in yourself, absolutely. But there's some things you can do, you know, relatively low cost, um, certainly to get a foundation. So do that. Um, So I I took too long. And then I think probably I, let's say I perfected, maybe not perfected, but I I got the cookie cutter working pretty well from, say, 2009, say, until roughly
1: 2017,
0: 18. Um, So I decided to scale. But... Not really scaling with the right um, tool and structure, t- uh, team and structure. is what I meant to say, with the right team and structure in place, and probably grew, you know grew too fast without the right team around me, and and so there were some growing pains. <laughs> there were some growing pains at that, you know, during that during that phase. So that that there are some of the key lessons, I suppose. There's probably more. I, I've made loads of mistakes. I think. Um, I, I, One of the benefits, perhaps, of being an old dog who's made a load of mistakes is that you can impart some of that wisdom. Because I, I, I say experience is learning from your own mistakes, and wisdom is learning from other people's mistakes. So um, I've got a bit of
1: wisdom. (laughs) Absolutely. So uh, do you know what we haven't asked? Well, I haven't asked you what was the date or the year when you actually managed to go full time in property. I
0: should know that. Um, <laughs> so I just, I'm really rubbish with dates. Um, so I was working for Siemens Financial Services at the time. And so I could probably peg it from my CV. So I think it was round about 2012, something, maybe something like that. And that first year was a, an interesting one because I stepped out without... A full safety net. Um, again, a clue to my risk profile. But um, so I had, to, I put my hand up for a voluntary redundancy at work, and they said, "Put your hand down." And I said, oh, "Please, what's what's the package? What's the package?" And I'm like, "You, there's a box over here with your name on it. You know, you you're okay. You know." So and I said, "No, but but really, what's the package?" But the last thing you should do in a redundancy situation is ask what the package is because. You, you don't end up with the full uh, benefits necessarily that you could do. But it didn't matter to me because by then I had a few uh, Vitalettes and um, HMOs. I had an income stream. I think it was about three grand a month, something like that at the time. And I thought, well, this is it. This is my moment. So that, that wasn't full income replacement. I was earning a six-figure salary at the time, including all the bits and bobs that you get added onto it. And so I also realized I didn't need to earn that much money, um, you know, personally, with, with some, with some um, adaptation. So uh, I put my hand up for the redundancy and I kind of worked out with the money I had, you know, coming in and the money from the redundancy. I, I could, I had something like, I think it was um, six to nine months of runway, you know, to, to make a, a fist of it, if you like, in my first year. And Helen, I missed uh, because it was it was month eleven when I I got the equivalent earnings to the previous year from full time employment. So um, I had a two months you know below below the water before it kicked in 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 month eleven, and that was mainly because I did a flip. So I did a flip to actually bridge the, the hole, and it took a bit of time for that to happen. And then after that, you know, things being being pretty good. The income's been there; it's grown steadily. I like to add assets to the portfolio, try and retain as much as possible, um, and you know it's, it's gone—it's gone really, really well. So, I think stepping out was, as I say, you have to check my LinkedIn profile when I actually left <laughs> financial services for the exact date. I think it was about then, so it would have been roughly um, somewhere three or four years into the investing properly.
1: Okay, so the the other side to your now over well over a decade um, of investing in property and around eight years of working full time in property, (laughs) we'll check that on your LinkedIn profile later. Uh, So you you must have plenty of tips and, and advice for either newbies to property investing or. Um, people who are just considering it at the moment and don't really know where to start. What would be your top tips at this juncture?
0: For newbies in particular? Mm. Mm. Okay. So I always say, I mean, a lot of it depends on um, circumstances and your drivers and what you're trying to achieve. So I always say, you know, people... I tell you what, if someone, if someone gave me a pound, every time they said, you know, what strategy should I follow, I would be a very wealthy person. But you don't start with strategy that's the point so you start with what you want out of life i always start there so i say what do you want out of life what do you want your lifestyle to look like what do you want to do with your time who do you want to you know spend your time with um you know what's important to you what values do you have and these sometimes tough questions especially if you're like 18 years old or something you don't necessarily know all of those answers at that point but. Generally speaking, what do you want to, you know, and if you can't think about your whole life because you are only 18, 21, 25, 30, and you've got a lot, lot of uh, decades ahead of you, then maybe you don't have all the answers, but you could say, well, what does it look like in, say, 10 years? So you can project for a shorter period of time. So I'd start there, um, which would be, you know, what do you want your future to look like? And then you can kind of work back from there. And you say, well, what is it, where, am I, where am I now? You kind of get this, what I call this gap analysis. So you go, well, that's what I want it to look like. That's where I am now. Could be measured monetarily, could be, you know, your lifestyle, it could be your asset base, it could be things and causes you want to support in life, um, you know, that you, you want to achieve. And so you have this sort of gap. So I was talking about one of the, one of the biggest tips is to plug your gaps. Well, one of them is to get from A to B. You know, that's a gap. But other gaps are well, you might not have the funding, you might not have the know how, you might not have time um to or or all of them or some of them and so plugging your gaps is um you know paramount so once you've identified where you're going what are the gaps that you actually have and then it's really to set out set out a plan of how you're going to you know plug those gaps bridge that a to b gap as well uh, and achieve what you you want to achieve so that's so that's just the kind of business speak you know get get your goals in place and get a plan in place and what resources do you need and how could you get them? But then I think there's the other side of it, which is much more about um, your mindset and your um, way of thinking. Um, so there's there's two types of the mindset. There's like the knowledge part, and then there's the kind of belief part. And either one can trip you up if you don't have, have it right. So I think I'd really major in on that. And so... Um, I'm very much into personal development. I'm very much into what I call the principle of lifelong learning. Uh, even this old dog, you know, I just I love to, um, you know, find out new things. My kids teach me things. I love it that they do. You know, I went pescatarian at the start of this year, and that's largely influenced from my children. They're all grown up and activists, you know, in terms of saving the planet and everything, which is great. You know and that teaches me so it keeps me young as well but I think get the knowledge so we've, with someone really starting out particularly if they're at the younger end of the scale I would say a couple of things one is you know tune into some decent podcasts um, go into some you know read some magazines get a couple of books in the property space and get yourself sort of a core level of education knowledge and I'd spend about three to six months doing that I wouldn't normally say network as well Um, right now that's kind of difficult uh, physically at least so uh, you can virtually network um, and hopefully when things open up you can physically network as well Uh, leave your credit card at home for that period of time and just get this foundational knowledge just go out and explore without an agenda without needing or having uh, feeling a pressure to do anything Um, because it's amazing because when you feel you've got money burning a hole in your pocket or you've got time you know just Slipping through the, you know, the sundial. Um, is that the word? It's not a sundial, is it? Um, the thing, the sand in it.
1: The hourglass.
0: That's it. The hourglass. Through <laughs> <laughs> the hourglass. Um, you know, it's not as it's not as pressurised as you think. So take your time. So get yourself educated. You don't necessarily need to spend tens of thousands of pounds on a property mentorship or anything like that. Um, and I think the other thing is, from a personal development point of view, is about belief. And when I say that belief, uh, well, mindset, actually, there's many different components. But I think, you know, the limiting beliefs and and having kind of a can-do attitude, being solution-minded, being pragmatic. A bit of hard work is probably going to help you out as well, by the way, you know, to begin with. Um, Certainly, you have to work hard initially to not, not work so hard later. So that's definitely a principle. So there's a few things there for the newbies in particular. And I've got a lot of resources, as I'm sure you know, Helen, that people can plug into, which are either free or low cost. I think my, my book, uh, Property Investor Talk, it's only three quid or something. So you could, you know, in a magazine, subscribe me. Actually, my articles on YPN are free, are subscription free. just need to um, write in to, to us and uh, ask to be put on that mailing list, you get all those. So I do that to begin with, but I really work on mindset and belief because, and here's the thing, um, we
1: talked about this before. Did we talk about the 1%, the 1% club? Did we talk about that? I think, I've certainly heard mention of it before. So, but yeah, let's, we, we haven't talked about it in this, in this episode. So let's run through that again. So to be in
0: the 1% in the UK, um, on average, there's two, two measures of, of, um, of the 1% I'm referring to here. One is by income and one is by wealth or net assets. So do you have, have an idea of what sort of income level or asset value you might need in either case to be in the top 1% of the population, approximately?
1: No, I can't remember. So you'll have to refresh my memory. So it's 160,000 a year.
0: And it's, it's, I think it's 3.2 million. I think it's 3.2 million net um, assets. And so uh, that's, that's to be in the 1% club. And that's just by wealth. And by the way, when I talk about 1% Club, it's not only by wealth, it's also about the way where you think and it doesn't always have to be financial. So it's just a way of thinking. It's, it's, a, it's a, a way of being almost um, as, well, as much as anything. But if you want to be in the 1% or if you um, want to have that kind of mindset, then you actually have to think like a 1%er, as I call it. I uh, Ideally, you need to associate it with 1%ers. And, you know... They say we're a product of the five or six people closest to us. Uh, Whether that's scientifically proven, I don't know, but there's a lot of merit in we're influenced by our environment. We're influenced by people around us. So I think surround yourself with the right type of people. Get as much positive input, positive energy. People who have actually done it as well, I would say that, because there's lots of so-called experts who haven't really done it. So just make sure you find the right people to associate with. And that can be just people who are committed to personal growth. That's what I mean about 1% from that point of view. So it could be someone who's not you know, financially in the 1%, but has the sort of mindset and attitude and commitment level of being in the 1%. And I think this, you know, our, our own mindset and the environment with people that we associate with are the two biggest drivers, actually. Um, for, and, and this doesn't just apply to young people. It applies to all of us. You know to get that right. So put yourself in the right environment, associate with the right people, flip that lid off your head, and put some good stuff inside that brain. Um, You know from from reading good books, and this isn't just books these days. It's all sorts of media and content that you can learn from. Uh, Invest in yourself. Certainly, leave the credit card at home for one.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So we are talking in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And um, I know, as an aspiring investor myself, I wonder what changes we might see in in the property market, um, both you know now and after. Hopefully, the pandemic passes. What would you say to people who who might be worrying about whether now is a good time to invest and what potential changes there might be in the marketplace?
0: Sure. Okay. So, as far as potential changes in the marketplace, who knows? <sighs> that wasn't the answer you're looking for, though, was it? Well, I
1: guess uh, like, what you know, what is there anything that we can do? I am
0: or- just playing. I'm just playing with you. <laughs> playing with you. So, um, I, have, I have my own thing. I meant, I meant, who knows? In a, in a, I was being a bit ironic, but I, you know, I have my own opinion about what might happen, but I might be proven wrong. Um, so, for example, I do think that w- there will be opportunity. I think commercial and retail will be decimated, um, but probably on like a staircase type of um, model because there's so much you know, government support that's being put into business, let's say, and individuals. There's the job furlough scheme. There's the, uh, I've forgotten what the, other. There's the, the grants for the hospitality sector. There's the bounce back loans and civils loans. You know, there's a whole range of different, an unprecedented level, actually, of financial aid. And not just going into the large banks and everything, which is what happened primarily in the global financial crisis, um, roughly when I started investing. Um, this is going into the hands of small businesses and, and larger businesses and individuals. Um, but it will be, we will be weaned off it. And as we're weaned off it, there will be, unfortunately, winners and losers. Um, but I think some of the losers might be more in the commercial, retail, hospitality sector. So I see an opportunity. From a, a, a maybe a horrible thing to say, but I think you know change of use from commercial and retail into residential could be an area for a, 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 an aspiring investor to look at over the next months or years. I think residential will probably largely bear up. Um, if you know, if not thrive to some extent, I think there might be a blip. There might be some unemployment and that might affect things, but. You know, even with unemployment, that creates opportunities for investors with, say, you know, benefits tenants even. So I think you can hedge a little bit there. So I think residential bear up a bit stronger than, say, the commercial sector. So that's the kind of looking forward bit. I'm probably seeing some maybe some changes in trends like homeworking. Look at you and I. We're we're both you know, from our homes having this call over Zoom, like thousands of people um, at the moment. And, you know, my wife works in HR, as I've probably told you before, and she's been doing lots of surveys. She She's responsible for 55,000 people, and um, they're largely really enjoying working from home. They, there's lots of merit in it, and people kind of want to stay with it as far as possible. There's some challenges with that. Childcare and, you know, being on your own and not having the right equipment and Working at the kitchen, you know, table with the kids screaming around you and stuff like that—it's not always ideal. Uh, but I think there'll be home working, different trends like that, and there'll be some downsizing of large offices, and maybe a bit more of a push towards regional bases. Which, by the way, will mean people might move out of cities and look for green space, outside space. You know, maybe even work from a laptop in Bali. Who knows? So I think there's some going to be some trends like that. So the question I would say is: Well, so what? So with these changes, so what? And as an intelligent investor, that's the question you're always asking, so what? What does that mean to me? What can I do with that information? So I think that is, I'm not necessarily gonna give all the answers, but I think ask the question, so what? And what do you make of it yourself? But the, the first question you asked me was, um, oh yeah, change because of the um, pandemic, et cetera. So here's the thing, the last time we had anything of this scale, was before pretty much anybody's lifetime or certainly living memory, Spanish flu roughly ran about the First World War, was the closest parallel we've got. We've had other localized pandemics um, and we've had some global pandemics, but on a smaller scale, but on this sort of level of, you know, in terms of scale and, and, and reach, um, it was the Spanish flu as the last thing and no one can remember what happened then. Um, pretty much, because even if you are 100 years old, a roundabout winner, you wouldn't remember what happened. So, um, so we we can learn from back then. I have done some research, and there was like a relatively you know, sharp drop, and then I'm doing more of a tick these days. I think it's going to be more of a tick recovery rather than a V recovery. Mm-hmm. So, I think there will be a, a, a there is a short, short, sharp shock, but it will recover. Perhaps not as long. It won't take necessarily as long to recover as a global financial crisis. Maybe. But um, so that's my just prediction. Um, But here's the thing, whether it's a pandemic or a global financial crisis or a oil crisis or ERM, you know, um, exchange rate mechanism, you know, collapse or any other crisis that you might want to mention, just ordinary recession, change happens cycle. We go through cycles. So um, whether it's the economic cycle or property cycle, something will happen. And everyone will go, well, I didn't see that coming. But guess what? we go through those cycles and roughly at least once a decade we'll see something happen of a significant scale so the thing with being a property investor uh, in particular you know and developer is being able to survive these um, shocks and prepare ourselves for them so I always talk about making our property portfolio bulletproof
1: um,
0: to a recession so there's various ways you can do that probably don't have time for it in this discussion but if anybody's interested i've got some resources around that so we should we should prepare ourselves in what we do so that we can you know survive some of the hard times and they will come and they will come but by the way out of hard times also comes opportunity so you know you want to you want to take the opportunities when they arise and you want to protect the downside you know in the good times so that you can survive the downside when it comes around full circle again so whether it's a pandemic, global financial crisis or any other, you know, apparent shock to the economy or the property market, expect it. It's going to happen and be prepared. Be prepared in a positive way, but also be prepared in a defensive way is what I would say.
1: That's um, fascinating to hear you say that, Richard. So I I know quite a few people who are very successful in property uh, now. And something that really strikes me about all of them is they don't see these kind of global crises as too much of an issue. They, well, they what they don't exhibit is fear. They seem to they look for the opportunities. That that's how they see a challenge. Is okay. So where's the opportunity? Um, and also you know diversifying your whether it's your property portfolio or whether it's a wider investment portfolio makes total sense so you know what I think we're coming to the end of our interview today um is there anything else that um, I should have asked you that I haven't asked you mm. um, certainly where can people um access well, information I, It might be a good
0: i do that but I'm just thinking if there's something I really feel I should say and um it's kind of a reinforcement in some, some respects. It's something I did say earlier. But I think, you know, know, know yourself. Um, know what you stand for, what your values and principles are. And um, be, be an oak tree. Put, put firm roots down. So when a storm comes along, and this is a metaphor you can use for yourself and your own character and your personality, but also for your business, your property business. So I want to just leave maybe with that parting thought of an oak tree that um, you know, it's very rare you'll see an oak tree that's blown over by a gale, because they, you know, and they they, they stand for you know a century or more. So I, I would say that's probably the biggest principle of all. And so, but know yourself, um, and then really try and associate with. This is the most important thing. There's so many partnerships and opportunities to develop and learn and collaborate in this industry sector. But I would try and work with people you really resonate. And the way to really understand that is first understand yourself. Um, so really get in touch with yourself, your values, uh, because there's going to be plenty of opportunities, plenty of collaborations that come your way, and plenty of opportunities to um, take people's services, actually. But, you know, try and work with people who resonate with you guys. So that's probably the bit I wanted to stress more than anything. Sorry to get one a bit longer. But I think... Probably, yes. <laughs> this is the Property Voice podcast uh, interviewing the what would otherwise be the host. Uh, you probably know where to find a lot of stuff. So, um, you know, obviously our website, um, thepropertyvoice.net. And I think um, if you want any of the resources I've been referring to on and off throughout, the, you know, the recession proofing or the YPN subscription, things like that, just drop an email admin at and uh, Karen, a delightful Karen who helps me. Um, has been for a number of years now. We'll gladly point you in the right direction. And, of course, reach out to me. Um, I'm always happy to give people a pointer. Um, you know, and, and that might be to a resource I already have, but or it might be to a person if it's not not me. But, you know, just reach out. So that's probably the – go to the website, prophecyvoice.net, and maybe the email. And normally say if you want to reach me personally, it's podcast at So, But if you want the resources, admin. You want me, podcast.
1: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for uh, allowing yourself to be submitted to uh, my interview questions, and I'm absolutely certain that um, your listeners will have got so much from, from this. So, thanks again.
0: No, thank you, Helen. But actually, before we go, um, I think it's important um, because this is we talk about values, and I know you share a lot of these values yourself. But you've got some exciting news yourself, haven't you, looming? I believe.
1: Yes, I have. So, um, I'm just about to launch a joint venture. Um, I'm a book coach, business book coach, and uh, I've joined forces with a business friend who's, you know, we share the same values. That's how this all came about. She (laughs) is a layout designer. (laughs) And uh, it was actually my suggestion when we realised that we were both being asked regularly by clients about the other parts of the book um, you know, publishing process um, and, and I suggested that we might want to come together and offer a complete solution for self-publishing a business book from concept to completion. So it's called the Bizbook Foundry. Um, it's www.bizbookfoundry.com and, um yeah, delighted to uh, have a chat about people's book ideas uh, if they'd like to get in touch.
0: Yeah, I've seen you. So um, prolific, actually, at the moment, um, both in delivery and also communicating your message on, on some of the social media platforms. And you deliver an awful lot of valuable content just in in that area. I know you do a couple of challenges. I don't know if you're still doing those from time to time where you give, give over content. I've attended one myself, so it was good. Um, can speak with experience, so um, I wish you all the best for that, Helen. You definitely deserve it. Um, you I mean, I've known you now for a few years. We've worked together in a number of different ways, including with some of the book stuff. So, uh, if anybody is interested in, um, because by the way, just to put it in context, um, a book is like a giant business card, isn't it? It's you know this authority that you can have um, in your sector or in your niche. So, if you want to giant business card, probably not the best analogy either, but if you want a higher profile, a bigger profile, then maybe get in touch with Helen and Catherine with the BizBook Foundry. I'm sure they'll help you
1: out. Good luck with it. Thank you very much. Welcome. I hope you enjoyed the interview with our very own property voice, Richard Brown. There are a few themes I'd like to pull out of our interview. Uh, first off, I was really struck by Richard's life before property which started off with a strong work ethic, even as a a young lad uh, with part-time jobs. And then I was also really struck by the fact that Richard worked in business finance, but actually his personal finances were a bit of a mess for a while there, which might be a bit of a surprise. So Richard's first foray, into property it was as an accidental landlord in the mid-90s and there were a few teething problems and Richard sold that property which I think I could detect a, a hint of bitterness about even now. So then in the mid nineties, Richard became aware of the power of compounding and had one of those light bulb moments. And in fact, Richard feels that he took a bit too long over his education in property and estimated that the four year delay in taking action as a result cost him something like two million pounds. So that's um, something to bear in mind if you're thinking about getting into property. And then in 2009, Richard uh, bought his first few investment properties, and then uh, he managed to go full time in property in 2012. He's used a variety of strategies, and his first point with regard to choosing a strategy is to make sure that it's the right one for you and your goals. Richard said when he was talking about his rapid scaling up in 2017 to 2018, growth is not for everyone, especially accelerated growth. So over-trading can be um, a temptation um, and really uh, ought to be avoided. So I hope you found that useful. I'm sure you did. I think the biggest two takeaways for me are when Richard talks about the 1% of really wealthy people um, in the UK and what sets them apart from others. And he felt that the first part of that equation is mindset. So how can you flip negative self-talk instead of saying I can't what can you do to flip that round to how can I and the, the second part is the importance of people and the environment around you so you need to surround yourself with people who are positive who have the same values as you who you resonate with Who have actually done what you want to do, and that would set you out and set you in good stead. Um, And if you want to have a look at the show notes, they are as always on the Property Voice website www.thepropertyvoice.net. Now, Richard did tell me off because I forgot to mention that my next free five-day Get Unstuck With Your Book challenge starts on Monday the 13th of July. So if you would love to write a business or non-fiction book but you just don't know where to start or perhaps you've got stuck somewhere along the line, please do sign up and um, we'll help you out. And I will give Richard the link so that'll be in the show notes too.